0: Welcome, dear listener, to a special episode. I've cobbled together a few bits and pieces of previous episodes and see how it pans out. We'll start off with a little bit from episode 53. Scott, we got a lovely little message from a guy called Sean, not the Sean that you and I know, but a different Sean, saying, Just wanted to say thanks for the work you were doing with the secular party. I'm thinking of joining and would be great to find out more of the grand plan to bring the religious mob back down to earth. Even though you only got two and a half thousand odd votes, please keep on going. I voted for you too, and from now on I'll be spreading the word and preaching the gospel of the secular party. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well done. Thank you very much, Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. You've warmed the heart
0: of an old secularist with those words. <laughs> Thank you. Ah <laughs> uh, Scott, um, I think we mentioned actually last week um, that the Chilcot Report would be coming out
1: yes and it is out
0: Mm. and
1: and it's uh well i'm
0: taking i'm going to take a guess that you haven't read it
1: i haven't read the whole two and a half million words Mm. no i haven't but um i've read a lot about what's been said about it Mm. and the brisbane times chilcott report the mind-boggling incompetence of bush blair howard laid bare
0: Mm.
1: chilcott's Unambiguous findings include There was no imminent threat from Saddam Hussein well, I don't think anyone's arguing there That there was no imminent threat from him mm. A strategy of containment Was preferable to military intervention mm. Absolutely it was There was no justified certainty To London's judgments On the severity of any threat Imposed by Iraq's WMD mm-hmm. um, I don't know about that But clearly they didn't find any WMD afterwards So the intelligence was clearly flawed mm. Blair was warned explicitly, but chose to underestimate the consequences of the two thousand and three invasion. Um, that didn't surprise me when I heard that. Mm. And planning for managing post-Saddam Iraq was inadequate. Well, that was clearly evident. Um, you know, the whole thing has disintegrated down into a bitch fight, and it is Islamic State versus everyone else, and it's awful.
0: Mm. It's it's not often, mm. is it, that something like this is called into question by an independent inquiry so soon after the event. I mean, history will often condemn leaders for things they've done in terms of starting wars. But... Um, Generally, so, the leaders
1: have to be dead first.
0: Yeah, and so thoroughly. So it's yeah. um, it's really great to see because it's an abomination that we entered that in the in the first place. So... This Chilcot has really served it up to Tony Blair in particular, given it's a UK report, and Mm. um, a little bit of passing mention of John Howard along the way. But um, Mm. a couple of interesting things I got from that article, Scott, was that, um, you know, there's this feeling that we have to um, agree to everything that the US suggests if we want to maintain a proper alliance with them, like that's part of being a good alliance partner. And this article makes the point that uh, the UK had differed with the US on a number of occasions previously on Suez, Vietnam, the Falklands, Grenada, Bosnia, the Arab-Israel crisis and Northern Ireland. And none of that had a lasting impact on the partnership. So you can disagree with the Americans on things and still stay friends. Exactly. Mm. And the other one yeah. was that, that in relation to the Iraq war, France and Germany, who, who, who didn't uh, sign up and join up, it hasn't affected them in terms of their you know relationship with the US. It's not like the US... Uh, isn't prepared, you know, thinks any less of those two as a result. So um, so this whole notion that we've got to do everything that the US wants us to do, otherwise we'll lose our, you know, our benefits as a good alliance partner, this article makes the point. His it, it's history is showing with other incidents in other countries it's just not the case.
1: Hmm, exactly. Mm.
0: So um, I like this bit where it says... Um, you know, the justifications, um if if you know, the if the reasons for going to a war in Iraq were were valid, then we'd be invading a different country every month. So places like Iran, North Korea and Libya were far greater threats uh than Iraq in terms of the reasons given for invading Iraq at the time. And uh the article says the truth is that this trio, namely Bush and Blair and Howard, wanted to invade Iraq because they thought it would be easy. They figured it would teach the rest of an uppity world a lesson on the extent of American power. Instead, we were showing the limits of American power. How true that is.
1: That was very true. Um, you know, I think they were right in assessing that the war would be over quickly, but the W.A.R., the small W.A.R., mm. has dragged on. Mm. You know, the, the initial victory was there quickly, that sort of stuff. But That's following fun. on from that, it has um, proven to be a disaster.
0: Well, very on in an episode, I played a tape of of a U.S. a female sort of soldier questioning either Rumsfeld or, or Rumsfeld Chaney. was, yeah. yes. Yeah. And saying, well... What what are the plans? What's the plan
1: for the post-war? For
0: post-war that we just doesn't fall into a disaster and he said, "Oh, is there a hmm. man in the room?" because
1: he exactly. could not yeah. answer
0: the question. So hmm. Here it is dear listener, the clip from episode 1 which was resurrected on the 9th of September 2015. Carefully. Promise. There's a hand that looks like a Good. woman. It is. I am a woman. Thank you. I'm not going to catch the dickens now, see? I... <laughs> I'm Deborah Nelson, Captain Nurse Corps from Salinas, California. And, uh, Mr. Secretary, none of us wants to win the war and lose the peace. How can we create a stable transitional government in Iraq, should Saddam be replaced, that would improve world peace and not foster chaos? And terrorism. <laughs> Where's a man? Uh, anyway, um, I, uh, on the same topic, John Menadue—you uh, know, probably our favourite blog, I'd say, Scott. Yeah. Um, he's come out and he's looked at it from the point of view of the Murdoch press. And you know, a couple of weeks ago, you said you, um, you you didn't have very strong feelings about the Murdoch press. But um, I'm, I'm,
1: <laughs> give me another episodes. 52... i I'm, I'm about to be told told off, eh? Hey?
0: <laughs> give me another fifty two episodes, Scott. And um, and I reckon you'll <sighs> you'll be uh, you'll be changing your tune. But uh, John Menadou points out that basically Rupert Murdoch was pushing for that war all along. And he's quoted now some of the things that Rupert Murdoch said. So in 2003, Murdoch said, We can't back down now where you hand over the whole of the Middle East to Saddam. I think Bush is acting very morally, very correctly. The greatest thing to come of this to the world economy, if you could put it that way, would be US $20 a barrel for oil. Like, he openly admitted an oil motivation. A few weeks later, Murdoch said, we worry about what people think about us too much in this country, referring to the US. We have an inferiority complex, it seems. I think what's important is that the world respects us. The US troops would soon be welcomed as liberators. That was in April 2003. And and when things (coughs) fell into chaos, Murdoch said, there's tremendous progress in Iraq. All the kids are back at school. Um, most of Iraq is doing <laughs> extremely well.
1: You know, what planet is he on? It's, it's the planet where it's in his
0: economic interests that there was a war. So he sold a lot more papers and got a lot more media time. Um, people, you know, that's the planet that he was on, was, was planet Rupert Murdoch and his own view of his own best interest. And... Um, the thing about Murdoch is he controls his underlings so much Scott like it's not like he's just mad but his editors and newspapers and whatever can sort of you know conduct a, their independent line like he's right on them so have you heard of this have you, uh, so from the Australian is a guy called Greg Sheridan so yeah, he's the I know foreign Greg Sheridan, editor yeah. so he's often on panels and things and um So, John Menadue in the same article has found quotes from Greg Sheridan when he was foreign editor of The Australian. Um, Greg Sheridan said, George W. Bush was really a modern Winston Churchill. For goodness sake. And then in April 2003, again Sheridan, The Australian, said, the eagle is soaring. The bald eagle of American power is aloft. High above the humble earth, and everything it sees is splendid, for as it soars and sweeps, it sees victory, power, and opportunity. <laughs> oh,
1: for God's sake!
0: Finally, just with you know, while well, well, we can, Do he
1: spell "sicker fancy" or not? Uh, it's it's un- it's un
0: well. So, with those comments, like how wrong can you be? Yeah, I was thinking to myself, I was reading that, hang on, I'm sure I've seen Greg Sheridan on, on Q&A, for example. So sure enough, quickly Googled Greg Sheridan Q&A, and there was an episode here, and for his, um, you know, he's one of the panellists, and uh, on the program, it describes him uh, as this, Greg Sheridan is the Australian newspaper's foreign editor and is one of Australia's most respected and influential analysts of foreign affairs. Should we ever just bother watching Q&A ever again if they're going to
1: put Greg Sheridan on and and allow that as his bio? That is really sickening to hear that. I mean, Q&A used to be quite a good program. (laughs) It has got really pathetic of late, though, and that just makes it incredibly pathetic. Mm. So, you know, this is the thing. Somebody
0: like Greg Sheridan can make an enormous error of judgment like that, and he can get away with it. Like, he is appearing on panel shows as some sort of expert on things. And Mm. having, having written... Complete rubbish like that. So, And finally, somebody like Andrew Bolt. Um, what a great article <laughs> by um, Menadou for finding all these. Andrew Bolt in 2002 wrote, Let me spell it out slowly for Labor politicians. Saddam won't let in inspectors. But then two weeks later, when the inspectors were admitted, uh, Bolt didn't think it worthwhile apologising. And then... Following the 2005, 2005 Iraqi election, Bolt said, At last, democracy has come to Iraq, and yet our sneering elite insist it would have been better to leave the murderous Saddam alone. So,
1: um, Yeah, go on.
0: No, that's it. Like, these guys couldn't be more wrong, yet they've got all the airtime in the world to now put forward other views and they get away with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I don't think anyone really, even on the side of those of us who are opposed to the war, are mourning Saddam's passing. No. I think a lot of us are happy that he's gone, but not happy about the way he was removed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that uh, had the war been justified by the United Nations, that would have been a different story.
0: Yeah, well, they wouldn't have given the facts at the time. Otherwise, they'd be no. justifying wars against North Korea and all sorts of people right now. Exactly, if that was yeah. The case. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Paul Keating was in the media. He just said John Howard should hang his head in shame for doing what he did. Um, yeah. And it's
1: pretty hard to argue with him. Mm.
0: So anyway, yeah. that's the Chilcot Report and um, and what people have to say on that. And it will be interesting. It's just a great indictment on John Howard and Tony Blair and George W. Bush. All in exactly. black and white. Hmm. Uh, Scott, apparently, uh, are you feeling unhappy?
1: Am I feeling unhappy? Yes. No, I'm fairly happy. I've got a six-pack of beer coming, yeah. coming on Sunday. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs>
0: According to evangelical groups, the gay lifestyle is unhappy.
1: Oh, right, okay. Oh. Well, no, I'm not feeling unhappy. Right. No. <laughs> one other piece of
0: bad news. <laughs> Homosexuality is one of those things that send people to hell.
1: Oh, well, at least I'll have lots of friends down there with me. Mm.
0: So. <laughs> so this, dear, dear listener, comes from own, uh, an article. There's an evangelical group... Um, well, Hunter Bible Church, um, I think they're part of another group. If I can find their name, I'll find it. But basically, this is a group of evangelicals who don't have their own church premises at this stage. So what they're doing is they're hiring school, um, state school buildings and halls and conducting their affairs on weekends. And there's a guy called Darren Morgan from Human Rights Advocacy Australia... And he's been going to their services and also researching recorded sermons online and finding all the usual, you know, the things I've just said um, about the gay lifestyles. Well, finding these sermons where this evangelical group is doing some good old bashing of... um, of homosexuals and other good old-fashioned
1: gay bashing. Yeah, yeah.
0: good old-fashioned gay bashing. So he's uh, recorded the stuff. He's also um, got it off the internet, and he's then contacted the education department and said, "Well, you're leasing out your premises to a group which is uh, not working in um, you know in a way that's to the public benefit. They're conducting these nasty sermons." Um, promoting, you know, hatred against gay people. And he's having some success, Scott.
1: Hmm.
0: He's, um. he's um, you know, some of the things that this group has said is uh, the gay lifestyle is unhappy, homosexuality is one of the things that send people to hell, and they're quoting uh, sections of Leviticus um including references to the death penalty as punishment for the sin of homosexuality. So, um, yes, members of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches who don't own their own churches. So, dear listener, if you hear of a group of religious people who don't have their own church and who are using public facilities like schools, um, they can actually get booted out. On the basis of this sort of antisocial behaviour in their sermons,
1: and it is a bloody good thing too, because um, you know you've got to put up with the nonsense that they do sprout if they're in their own premises. Mm. But if they're using publicly provided premises, mm. then I think they've got to be more careful about what they say. So yeah. I'm I'm all in favour of that.
0: Mm. So, um, as you know, I subscribe to the Bible Society, and they had yes. an article about this where they were shocked that um, that this group was being attacked, and um,
1: they were calling out the persecution card, were they?
0: They were, in fact. Yes. So, hmm. there was a fellow, um, John Dixon, from the Centre for Public Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> There's a group for everything, isn't it? Now this guy actually There is a group for everything, yeah. Remember when we had that thing about the Ferris group and they were interviewed on television and the Ferris guy got totally smashed by the um, by the religious guy who who came over much more smoothly with his delivery of what yes. the rules were. Well yes. that was this yeah. guy, John Dixon, who's yeah. quoted in this article. Same guy from Centre for Public Christianity. Scott, I'm going to just digress for a moment. Centre for Public Christianity, I'm going to start a list because, as you know, I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet with these groups that just... There's a group for everything in the religious world. And I think every time we come across one now, we're just going to start our... We're going to say we start our own group with a slight variation. So... <laughs> so I'm... So what,
1: this, I'm the Centre for Public Atheism? Oh,
0: <laughs> Centre for Public Secularism. How about that? Yeah, OK. So, that sounds good, yeah. So, so we'll just say that we've created the Centre for Public Secularism. Would you? Uh, I'll be a founding director, and would you like to be executive director, senior research fellow, director of media, senior fellow, or uh, a chair? What would you like there?
1: I'll take the uh, chairman of that. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, be, be, I'll, I'll be the chair. chair. All right, yeah. so No worries. Every
0: time we get a group like that, we're going to um, just do our own version and see how many we end up with uh, at the end of year two. <laughs> so... So this is now also The Iron Fist, Velvet Glove and Centre for Public Secularism Okay. The Iron Fist, The Velvet Glove and The Twelfth Man are all members of the Secular Party There may be other contributors to the show who are also members That does not mean that every opinion given on this show is policy of the Secular Party To find out what is policy go to the website of the Secular Party and while you're there Think about joining and signing up, because we need more secularists in this world. Thanks. But I digress. Back to this article. (laughs) (laughs) So John Dixon... We're in the Bible Society, aren't we? Yeah, from the Bible Society, John Dixon. He said, complaining about uh, this uh, activist guy, They search for references to same-sex relationships, package up the quotations in a manner that suits their cause, and then write formal complaints to the Department of Education about homophobic sermons being preached in school facilities. For example, they will take a preacher's passing reference to the Leviticus death penalty and cast it as the preacher's own view.
1: (laughs) You know, if the preacher is going to use Leviticus in such a way, he's got to expect it's going to come back on him, can't he? Yes. I mean, there's no other way to... There's no other way to paint Leviticus. Leviticus is a hate-filled, bloody book. Yeah. You know,
0: it's... Well, this is what the pastor said. He said, in chapter 20, God states the death penalty for those who disobey. And notice throughout, if it is not the death penalty, it's being cut off from the people of God, which is still death, not just instant death. And so God is serious about sexual purity. I mean, that's not a passing reference.
1: That's no, it's not a passing reference at all. That's that's a full blown bloody, um, it's a, it's a, it's. Yeah. What's the word I'm groping for? He, he is not calling for the death penalty for homosexuals, but he is saying that that is an appropriate punishment mm-hmm. for us.
0: Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he goes on. John Dixon from the Center for Public Christianity. Uh, this isn't fair play. He wrote. It's coming up to a bit I really like. Hang on. Uh, uh, Let me see. Murray Campbell, a conservative Baptist minister in Victoria, points out that the internet has made church activities much more accessible to the public. And I'm quoting him here. Our sermons and websites are available to whoever is interested, including wacky atheists, angry secularists, and agenda-driven journalists, he wrote on his blog. (laughs) Uh,
1: well, you know, let's let's hope that um, that sort of thing keeps them well behaved. Yeah, that's interesting
0: because you know I haven't been shy of calling you know the religious groups nutbags, but I've never no seen... you're an
1: angry you're an angry secularist, yeah, oh, don't you? Yeah,
0: but I've never seen it the other turned around the other way. So it's interesting oh. to see that first. I think um, wacky yeah. atheists and angry secularists. So. <laughs>
1: mm. <laughs> Ah, Scott. Oh, dear. Okay.
0: Yes, dear listener, this is the Iron Fist of Glove, and home of the Centre for Public Secularism. Uh, (laughs) Scott, while we're on this, uh, we need to catch up on a few from previous episodes. So we'd previously had the Catholic Education Commission of Victoria, and I think we're now home to the Secular Education Commission of Queensland. Right, okay. Uh, There was also the one which was... um, the Uniting Aboriginal and Islander Christian Congress. And uh, I think we're now the Unified People's Secular Congress. Okay. Yeah. That's secular Congress, not sexual Congress. Right. Yeah, so
1: that's, that's three we're up to now. Yep. So, okay. uh,
0: on that one, you can be the Episcopal uh, vicar on that one, Scott. Okay. Yep. Thank you. And there's another group we dealt with at one stage, which was called Life, Marriage and Family. And I'm going to call our version of that uh, death, divorce, and unrelated.
1: <laughs> uh, oh dear!
0: We're going to list all those, and we'll you'll sound like a massive organisation. Now, Scott, absolutely, I've got one. I love a good theory um, or an adage or a, something that can be applied in many circumstances. Yes. And I haven't told you this one before. I, I kept this one aside. But um, in our discussions, or maybe you looked this up, in our discussions within the secular party, talking about potentially name change of secular party, because lots of people don't understand the word secular, a lot of toing and fro and yes. back and forth, and one of the writer's members said, you know, uh, there's a risk here that we're guilty of bike shedding. Did you see that comment?
1: Uh, I... Must have done, but I can't recall it. Right,
0: and he had a little, um, uh, a little link to after it as a what what he meant by bike shedding. And this is a fantastic um, theory to get around. So comes from a guy called Parkinson, who um, Parkinson's law of triviality, which is that members of an organisation give disproportionate weight to trivial issues. So I think we've all been part of committees that have done that. And what he gives, um, to illustrate his point, is uh, the example of a fictional finance committee meeting with a three-item agenda. The first item on the agenda is signing of a £10 million contract to build a nuclear reactor. The second item on the agenda is a proposal to build a £350-pound bicycle shed for the clerical staff... And the third proposal, the third item is a proposal to spend £21 a year to supply refreshments for the Joint Welfare Committee. And what he says is that the £10 million number is too big and too technical and it passes in two and a half minutes. But, <laughs> but the bicycle shed is a subject understood by the board and the amount is within their life experience. So... For example, committee member Mr. Softley says that an aluminium roof is too expensive and they should use asbestos. And Mr. Holdfast wants galvanised iron. And somebody else questions the need for a shed at all and blah, blah, blah. And and, um, everyone can visualise a bike shed and discussion goes on for 45 minutes with a possible saving of 50 pounds. And members sit back with a feeling of accomplishment. And the same... (laughs) The same happens with the third item about the coffee. Every, every man there knows something about coffee and is going to put their two cents worth in. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you, uh, you can sometimes in these committees, if you're bike shedding, you're actually taking the easily understood but relatively trivial thing and arguing forever over that and the really big figure and the complicated one just gets passed over with no discussion. Yeah, I reckon Scott, the Australian community has done that with submarines. Like the submarines just went.
1: I yeah, I mean you're probably right. It the submarines number was so gigantic, you, yeah, I, I dare say that people just passed it over. And the whole idea it was of, so gigantic. Yeah, yeah, and the
0: idea of trying to understand different submarines and purposes and blah blah blah, people have gone oh, just that's too hard for me. So, um, so just. Go ahead, do whatever you want to with submarines. Like I think, <laughs> I think that was a bike shedding moment, sort of socially for Australia for a, a lot of Australians. Anyway, so I
1: think I think you're probably right mm, there. Yeah.
0: So I I think bike shedding is a term that I'm going to use a lot over the next uh, little while, Scott. Uh, it's going to be a favorite. No worries. But there was also I was just on the same page, and this is um, uh, a duck theory, which I quite liked as well. And uh, the idea is that. If you've you've got a boss or an overseer, some of them, no matter what you produce, will feel the need to um, make some slight change to whatever it is that you've done, just to sort of make themselves feel like they're doing their job. So you could do the most perfect presentation or idea or whatever, and they'll say, yeah, all good, except for one thing, and change that thing. And... um, the duck theory talks about it in this way um, of an example of, of an artist working on the queen animations for battle chess, so an, an animator for a game. Mm-hmm. And uh, the artist was aware of the tendency of, uh, of the producers to, to want to change something. So he, he came up with an innovative solution. He did the animations for the queen the way that he felt would be best with one addition he gave the Queen a pet duck. He animated this duck through all of the Queen's animations and had it flapping around the corners. (laughs) He also took great care to make sure that it never overlapped the actual animation. Eventually, it came time for the producer to review the animation set for the Queen. The producer sat down and watched all the animations. When they were done, he turned to the artist and said, ''That looks great. Just one thing. Get rid of the duck.'' (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so, Scott, when you've got a brilliant idea, you just toss in a little thing like that, like a duck. That'll give somebody something to complain about, and then you get the rest of your idea through.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: See, I reckon if I'd have put my submarine submission to the party and I'd have said, you know, blah, 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 but, you know, we're going to have a nuclear submarine, three of them, but they've got to be yellow, and we're going to have... Uh, you know, three ordinary smaller Japanese submarines, but we're going to make them yellow. And then by the end of it, everyone might have said, oh, that all sounds pretty good. Just what? They don't have to be yellow. Just
1: Make them grey, yeah. That would have been it.
0: (laughs) How do I know? And I could have got that through.
1: Well, you never know. Yeah.
0: So, dear listener, uh, in future episodes, when we talk about bike shedding and duck theory, uh, you'll know what we're talking about. And now we have a little bit from episode 67 where we discussed our, our little excursion to a Hillsong event. One thing I do remember was that uh, uh, so they were saying, oh, don't forget, um, everyone, Wednesday night is men's night. We've got a special men's night function. Pastor Brian Houston will be coming along. Um, ladies if your man comes to this night, he's going he's gonna to worship Jesus more and he's going to worship you more. And who doesn't want that, hey? Hey, who doesn't want that? And all the ladies in the audience are going, yeah, I want my man to worship Jesus more. I want my man to worship me more. And, uh, and um, so, yeah, so then a guy came on and said, guys, it's going to be great on Wednesday night. Like, it's a men's only night. It's a men's night with Pastor Houston. It's going to be great. I can't tell you too much. I'll give you a little bit of a drip feed. You know, just one thing to sort of get you going. There's going to be a boxing ring. We're going to have some boxes. There's going to be a fight with some boxes. There's going to be bacon. There's going to be chicken wings with hot sauce. And it's not going to be good for your art or easy joke, but you're going to love it. Like, And we're going to worship Jesus. And we're going to be better men. So that's Wednesday night, uh, tomorrow night, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I can make it. Here we have a little bit from episode sixty-one, seventh of September, two thousand and sixteen. Scott, uh, Mother Teresa. You
1: know, she's yeah, no mother. She's, she's no Mother like Teresa, it's... is she? <laughs> I mean, you, can, you know, I, I, one of my first introductions to Christopher Hitchens was after he died. Mm. I. Mm. Looked him up on online and that sort of stuff, and I watched an expose that he made about Mother Teresa. Mm. She is a cruel megalomaniac. Mm. She got off on watching people suffer. Mm. She didn't try and alleviate the pain of the people or anything like that. She just gave them a place to die. You yes, know, she's not some miracle worker or anything else, and yet the whole world, it seems, fell over itself to kiss up to her. Yes. You know? It was a disgusting period of time. Mm. And when you look back on it, you know, with uh, open eyes, Mm -hmm. you can tell that she wasn't a very nice person. Mm.
0: Well... Mm. Uh, before I talk about the article that we've got a link to, Scott, so I've got a few things of surprises here. You, not, you'll get, you're getting this at the same time as the listener. But throat. the same member who attended the, um, the church to listen to the Knights of the Southern Cross sent me another message. And I think now we're going to have to call that member just Deep Throat is the nickname. Deep Throat. No worries. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll tell you who he, who he or she is afterwards. Yeah, no worries. Um, but uh, but de- yeah, so in, in future podcasts, when we talk about Deep Throat, uh, we're talking about the same member who's made but his Deep two Throat contributions. If comes
1: on, we'll have to we'll have to uh, <laughs> disguise his voice or something like that. That's right, we will.
0: <laughs> so Deep Throat uh, sent me another um, message, and he said, uh, "Hi Trevor, it is my week to be angry with the Catholics. It beggars belief that the Vatican would make Mother Teresa a saint." She should have faced a jail sentence. When I was working in a small hospital in India in 1983-84, we managed many cases of life-threatening uh, meningococcal septicemia, or it might be meningococcus septicemia. This was due to several epidemics of the disease over the, those two years that swept through the town and the boarding school at the time. I well remember the fear that enveloped that boarding school. The students were terrified that they would be next. The doctors of the hospital... ...developed great skill in the management of this disease. One of our doctors, a brilliant doctor who is now a professor... ...decided to go to Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa. Our doctor was soon back because of her disgust... ...at the treatment of those in Teresa's care. Mother Teresa chose to treat children with the meningococcal infection... ...with love rather than penicillin. Penicillin at the time was dirt cheap in India... Neglect yeah. of this magnitude is a heinous crime uh, signed is, deep throat uh,
1: yeah, I mean that, that is that that doesn 't surprise me that you, that you hear that' mm. it's, um, it's bloody disgraceful really, when you actually say it out loud isn 't
0: it? Well, the apologists would say she did the best with the resources that she had, and at least and she was that doing something is
1: garbage you know. Yep. It, <laughs> It, it, it's, it talks about in here somewhere past uh, Well, a waste of...
0: You know, she acquired all this money but then didn't use any of it for... for exactly. A, a little of yeah. it for actually helping people. But something like yeah. penicillin, people could have gone somewhere to get penicillin and survived, and instead they went to her and she prayed over them as they suffered their death.
1: they suffered and died, yeah.
0: Mm. Uh. So... Um, So that's Mother Teresa. So this article I've got a link to uh, says, um, well, I think she was canonised on September the 4th, just a couple of days ago. Um, And uh, this one talks about the two miracles that are required for being canonised as saint. So apparently (laughs) if you're going to be beatified, you need one. And then if you're going to be canonised as a saint, you need an extra one to get two. Mm. And uh, what this article says, I talked about Christopher Hitchens. So you mentioned him and his documentary. Um, Yeah. So when somebody's going to be, um, you know, when they're, open inverted commas, investigating whether somebody should be a saint, uh, there's, there's like a devil's advocate role of somebody who says, no, 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 they shouldn't be. And Christopher Hitchens actually had that role. The official devil's advocate role for the Mother Teresa Sainthood program. Um, Unfortunately, he wasn't successful. Um, But anyway, the first miracle, uh, the one that was required for her beatification, was a case of an Indian tribal woman, uh, Monica Basra, who claimed to have been cured in 1998 of stomach cancer in the form of tubercular tumour. After she placed a locket with a picture of Mother Teresa on her abdomen. However, the doctors who treated the then 30 year old woman stated she'd actually been cured with nine months of anti tubercular medication. <laughs> Reporting to the West Bengal government, the doctors insisted that Mrs. Bezra had continued to receive medical treatment long after the death of Mother Teresa. Bezra's husband, Seku Mermu, agrees. Quote, It is much ado about nothing. My wife was cured by the doctors and not by any miracle. End quote. He adds, My wife did feel less pain one night when she used the locket, but her pain had been coming and going. Then she went to the doctors and they cured her.
1: Yeah, This is exactly.
0: sort of nonsense. The, the second miracle attributed to Mother Teresa, was cloaked in secrecy. Reportedly, a Brazilian man's life was saved after his priest prayed for Mother Teresa to intervene with God. However, the man's identity was not disclosed at the time in order to maintain the discretion needed for the investigation. I mean, how can, how can they keep a straight face when this, with this stuff?
1: The gall... It was, you know, the the, 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 um, the whole article was baked, you know. It, it, it summed it up beautifully at the end of it all where it said, "...the Church's approach is obviously an attempt to trump science, downplaying its role in many actual cures, choosing remarkable cases, as emphasised their medically inexplicable nature. Doctors, including Catholic doctors, should refuse to play the miracle game." If the mm. church wishes to honour a, doct- a doctrinaire nun, let it do so without an affront to science and reason. Yeah, yep. You know, never a truer word's been spoken. But it is incredible. I think you described it as an affront. It was an affront because, mm. you know, they grabbed these two people. You know, the first one, the first one was incredible. You know, it, it, she'd been on nine months beginning the tubercular, what was it, tubercular treatment. Yeah. Yeah, and she'd been getting that for nine months, and she was cured. Mm. I mean, one would have thought that you'd, you'd sit there and say, "Well, hang on a minute, what worked—the drugs or the or the praying?"
0: <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. this whole notion that praying to a certain person makes them the you know generator of the miracle is is just. <laughs> Whoever dreamt that one up was just um, was in the business of creating saints, weren't they? I mean, when you when you develop well, would, a rule yeah. like that, you can really you can go to town on sainthoods. Then anything's exactly. possible. I mean, that's the one where you know you don't really need people present at all. So anyway, that's Mother uh, Teresa, um,
1: dear listener. Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, "Great, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at au and click on the donations link.
0: And finally, a bit more from episode 61. This is actually one of my favourite segments uh, that we've ever, we've ever done, and it uh, we look at the biography of Muhammad. Scott, uh, you know, this week we're a little bit short on um, news articles, so I thought that I would... I mean... We've grown up Christians, so we're quite familiar. And being in our uh, culture, we're quite familiar with Christian Bible stories, you know, that we've just come across through our, either through formal teaching at school or just uh, osmosis through Mm -hmm. um, popular culture, movies or whatever. But there's lots of the uh, Islamic faith that many people would not know anything about. And I thought, this is an opportune time. I have been finished reading, well, I finished reading um, a book called Muhammad and the Unbelievers, the Sira, a political biography by a guy called Bill Warner. And um, Bill Warner, um, American guy, uh, says that... Uh, Islam is basically defined by uh, the words of Allah in the Quran and the words and actions of Muhammad in the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A. And the Sunnah of Muhammad is found in two texts. You've got the Sirah, which is his biography, and you've got the Hadith, which are traditions or stories about what Muhammad did or said. So this particular book I've got is the Sirah, which is his biography. Talks about his life, and um, and so essentially, where in terms of Islamic faith, uh, it's not all about the Quran. It, it is as much about the Sunnah as it is about the Quran, because. Muhammad was the perfect version of what it means to be a Muslim, and everything he did was perfect. So um, so what this guy says is when you're wanting to argue about what do um, Muslims believe in, it's actually much easier to talk about... Um, the Sunnah being either the biography of Muhammad in the Sirah, or the Hadith being the stories about uh, um, uh, and traditions about what he did, as being much easier way of explaining what Muslims believe in. So, so that's sort of point A of, of the introduction, if you like, and uh, and so um, it's actually. Like this Sirah, this biography, is 20 times as long as the Gospel of Matthew. So we know a lot more about Muhammad than we do about Jesus. There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, A few other introductory bits is that if you were to just pick up an English version of... uh, Well, there's two sources or two biographies. Uh, The most respected sources are... One by Ishak and one by Al-Tabari. And uh, basically, um, they're hard to read documents because there's just a lot of guff in there. So what he's done is he's taken out the poetry and he's taken out... Like, there'll be certain pages, Scott, where just giving... um, It'll just be lists of names that go on for pages and pages. And, and just throughout the text, one person's name could be six lines long, and he just shortens it to just, you know, a shortened version of that. Um, lots of poetry, lots of uh, stuff that you don't need. So he's sort of condensed it all down into a much more readable format. But if anybody wants to question any of what he's said he's got references to the original work of Ishaq or of, uh, of Al-Tabari. So as I'm reading some of this stuff, Scott, I could say, um, I might give one of these stories that um, Muhammad was raised by Abu Talib, his uncle, and I could say, well, that's Ishaq, page 115. And then people could actually look at Ishaq, page 115, and say whether it does say that or not. So... Well referenced, and so when you, uh, if you do end up, dear listener, getting a copy of this book, you can make statements about Muhammad and say, "Well, it says so in Ishak, page blah blah blah." So, I like that side of it. Um, so I'm just going to have a bit of a crack here, Scott, and uh, feel free to interrupt at any point. Um, okay. At just a little background of of Muhammad, and to give people. Um, bit of an idea of um, of who he was so um, <clears throat> so uh, he was still in his mother 's womb when his father died uh, and when he was five his mother died. Uh, he was orphaned for the third time when his grandfather died so then he was looked after by his uncle Abu Talib. I mean this goes to show in that day and age Scott people were dying left, right and centre Yeah. Um, uh, it was a very tribal society at the time and he was from a tribe of the Quraish, uh Q-U-R-A-Y-S-H which were kind of like the priestly tribe of Mecca um, so that was the sort of tribe that he was associated with and uh he ended up, um, he was hired by his distant cousin, the wealthy widow, Khadijah, uh, to act as her trading agent. And she proposed marriage to him.
1: Really? Hmm.
0: They had six children. Two sons died in childhood. Uh, four daughters lived to adulthood. I think only one of them uh, survived to provide any children, but I uh, hold hold back on that thought. Just not quite sure on that one. But six children, two sons died in childhood, four daughters lived to adulthood. So his employer, a wealthy widow, uh, actually proposed to him. Um, so he uh, leads a pretty ordinary life until the age of forty when he began to have visions and to hear voices. That was when he started. Like, it's very late in life, particularly for somebody, you know, as we know, people are dying left, right and centre there, and, uh, you know, 40s getting on. Um,
1: It was getting on. It makes me wonder if it was, uh, if the uh, visions and that sort of stuff were some sort of early psychosis that was set in.
0: (laughs) Early dementia, maybe. Yeah, early dementia, yeah. He hated poets and the insane and he was really upset because he thought he was becoming insane or something like that um and he went to sort of kill himself but got more visions saying don't kill yourself and uh he went back to his wife and he told her he was either crazy or a poet and she said that he was neither of those things and perhaps the vision was true um so she was the first convert, and he's getting visions from the angel uh Gabriel and uh telling him about prayer and stuff like that and he you know becomes revealed to him that he starts his new religion, which he calls Islam, which means submission and he gets uh just a handful of of um of followers he's in Mecca at this time and um uh, hanging around now, a few episodes ago, the twelfth man um, talked about the the Kaaba, um, which was that black, um, all that stone sort of building that they all um, walk around and. Um,
1: oh yeah, in and, the um, and, for the uh, for the Hajj, yeah. Yes,
0: so that was you know there at that time, and it was a central place for Muhammad. He spent a lot of time around that. Um, anyway. Um he's you know he's quite the orator and he he speaks quite good poetry and he's obviously filled with a zeal and is convincing and persuasive but also just plain crazy mm. and um uh, uh this is from Ishaq page 183 Muhammad continued to preach the glory of Allah and condemn the Quresh religion which was his original tribal sort of religion he told them their way of life was stupid and insulted their ancestors, cursed their gods, mocked their religion and divided the community, setting one tribesman against another. The Quresh felt that this was all beyond bearing. Tolerance had always been their way. Many clans, many gods, many religions. Another religion was fine. Why did Muhammad demean the others? Now this is in Muhammad's own biography at page 183 of Ishaq. Yeah. It's a, uh, there's various other passages that I can't read, but there's a very strong theme where when he was originally just proclaiming his new religion, people are like, okay, believe what you like. Like, there's heaps of religions here. That's fine. But he had to go insulting and, and demonising the other ones, and that's when they had a problem. Mm. Gathers a few more followers... Um, and uh, let me just
1: it's a pity they didn't run him out early on isn't it
0: it is a real pity it is indeed <laughs> um, at one point some of his followers um, went to Ethiopia and uh, so some Christian uh, so and some Christians from Ethiopia came back to Mecca to try and you know find out who this Muhammad guy was that these these guys were talking about so again Ishak page 259 some Christians came from Ethiopia. Uh, To see Muhammad in Mecca. After extended conversations, they decided to accept Islam. Abu Jahl of the Quraysh said to them, What a wretched group you are. Your people sent you here to get information. And what do you do? You go and renounce your religion and believe everything Muhammad tells you? What a stupid (laughs) bunch you are. (laughs) They gave him a pleasant reply and they went back to Ethiopia. Like this this is from the biography of the official biography of Muhammad, page 259. Like, well said. Uh, well said. Okay, but uh, the good story that I'll just I'll, I'll spend a bit of time with before we finish up was um, The Night Journey. Scott, you might have heard a little bit about this. Uh, starts at Ishak, page 264. Um, Basically, Muhammad said that uh, one night as he lay sleeping, an angel nudged him with his foot. He awoke, saw nothing, went back to sleep. This happened again, happened again, blah, blah. Eventually, Gabriel took his arm. They went out the door, and before them, Scott, was a white animal, half mule and half donkey, with wings on its feet, so it could move to the horizon at one step. So Okay, yep. <laughs> I've got an issue already, Scott. Forget about um you know, having wings. A half mule and half donkey. Now Scott a mule is a cross between a donkey
1: donkey and a horse. And a isn't horse.
0: It? And yeah. it's sterile. Yeah. So you can't cross a mule then with a donkey. So I reckon you know, this book is wrong in the first place because, well, being half-mule really meant it was one... uh, I reckon it was three-quarter donkey and one-quarter horse with wings, if it was anything. (laughs) Because if a mule is half-donkey and half... horse, then... Then this white animal, which was half mule and half donkey, had to be three-quarter donkey and one-quarter horse. That would have been a far better explanation.
1: one little explanation you are <laughs> overlooking here, and that is that he was psychotic at the time and was imagining this.
0: <laughs> there is that too. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's important that we explore all possibilities here. So,
1: um,
0: anyway, this white animal uh, had wings... Um, so Gabriel put Muhammad on the white animal and off they went to Jerusalem, the site of the temple. And guess who was at Jerusalem, uh, Scott? Up no to, idea. <laughs> we're up to um, Ishak page 264 here. Uh, there at the temple was Jesus, Abraham, Moses and various prophets from Christian and Jewish scripture. And uh, they decided to have a prayer. Guess You know, you've got Jesus, Abraham, Moses, Gabriel and Muhammad. Uh, Guess who led them in the prayer?
1: Muhammad did.
0: Oh, Scott, well done. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that in Muhammad's biography that he describes that uh, he led them in prayer. So, Uh, hang on a
1: minute. He was in Mecca
0: when this was happening? Oh, no, he's travelled from Mecca on the the half-mule, half-donkey... Almost instantaneously uh, to, to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. yeah, right, because okay. this flying creature can just travel uh, almost immediately. So it's night time, but he's made this incredible journey in a matter of just moments.
1: Right. So okay. he's made
0: it to Jerusalem. He's met up with Jesus, Abraham, Moses, and uh, prophets, and he's kicked off where he's led them in prayer. Uh, Gabriel brought Muhammad two bowls: one filled with wine, and the other with milk. Muhammad took the one with milk and drank it. That was the right choice. So, um, next paragraph, or next page, uh, 265 in Ishaq's biography. When Muhammad told this story at the Kaaba, the Quresh hooted at the absurdity of it. And some of the Muslims found it too hard to believe and left Islam. Back in the 700s, there were, there were Muslims smart enough to say, what a load of nonsense, and walked yeah. out of him at that point.
1: It's just uh, a real pity that not all of them said, this is garbage, I'm yeah. out. Yeah.
0: But the story doesn't end there, Scott. Um, so, uh, so they're there, they finish the prayers, and Muhammad reports that Abraham looks exactly like Muhammad. Uh, Ruddy-faced, tall and thin with curly hair, whereas Jesus was light-skinned with reddish complexion, freckles and lank hair. Um, After the prayers, Gabriel gets a a very nice ladder. Uh, Muhammad and Gabriel climb the ladder until they reach the gates of heaven. Uh, So when they're there, they first of all... uh, go through various levels of heaven. So at the lowest level uh, was a man watching the spirits pass by, sometimes approving, sometimes disapproving. Um, This was Adam. He was reviewing the spirits. Um, Ishak, page 269. Muhammad saw men with lips like camels. In their hands were flaming hot coals. They would shove the coals into their mouths and the burning coals came out of their rectums. (laughs) These were those who had stolen the wealth of orphans. Uh, Then he saw women hanging by their breasts. These women had birthed bastards while married. Muhammad said Allah hates women who birth bastards. So, I mean, that's, that's the first level of heaven. Uh, Muhammad was then taken up to the second level, where he saw Jesus. Uh, in the third level, he saw Joseph, son of Jacob. In the fourth, he saw Idris. Uh, in the sixth, a dark man with a hooked nose. This was Moses. Um, and in the seventh heaven uh, was a man sitting on a throne in front of a mansion, uh, this man on the throne looked just like Muhammad, but was in fact Abraham. Uh, now Muhammad and uh, Abraham took Muhammad into paradise, where there was a beautiful woman with red lips. Muhammad asked whom she belonged, to whom she belonged, for she was very attractive to him. She was Zainab, the wife of his adopted son Zaid. You got to hand it to Muhammad. I mean. He's hopped on a winged beast, gone all the way to Jerusalem, led the great prophets in prayer, climbed a ladder. He's gone through six stages of heaven. He gets to the seventh heaven, sees a good-looking girl and says, well, who's that? Like, I'm, got, I'm a bit quite keen on her. Like, he's got an eye for the girls all the time. He, he a...
1: does have an eye for the girls all the time, you know. Mm. It's, um, there was no mention of, of a dozen virgins, though
0: no, oh, not in this section. Uh that yeah. will be in you know, perhaps it's in the Quran. Uh, it, it wasn't no, that wasn't really referred to in his biography. So it might be in the Quran or in the Hadith. Um, but right, not okay. in this. Yeah. So um uh, we're coming to the conclusion of it here, but um when he got to the seventh heaven I've heard that expression seventh heaven before, but I never thought about it. It must be re- referring to the seventh heaven of Muhammad You've heard of seventh heaven, have you?
1: Yeah, I've heard of seventh heaven, but it was only a well. It was always around the Christian yeah, Christian yeah. tradition, saying that the seventh heaven, that sort of stuff. But I couldn't tell you what it meant.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, um, so he gets there. Um, uh, Allah gave. So he gets to seventh heaven, and um, Allah gave him the duty of fifty prayers a day, Scott. So Allah said, "You need to do. You and your followers need to do fifty prayers a day.
1: Fifty so, a day.
0: Yes. <laughs> now, when What's he that, returned, is that what
1: they do the five, uh, Is it the four or five prayers they do a day?
0: Well, here's the explanation, Scott. Okay. So Allah says to to Muhammad, right, Muhammad, you and your followers, if you want to be good Muslims, uh, you need to do fifty prayers a day. So When he returned and he passed Moses, so that would be back in sixth heaven, Moses asked Muhammad how many prayers Allah had given him. When Moses heard that it was 50, he said, Prayer is a weighty matter and your people are weak. Go back and ask your Lord to reduce the number for you and your community. Muhammad went back and got the number reduced to 40. When he passed Moses, the same conversation passed. This repeated until Allah reduced the number to five. <laughs> <laughs> Moses tried to get Muhammad to go back and get the number reduced even further, but Muhammad felt ashamed to ask for less. Oh, he's <laughs> haggled. on Ugh. Muhammad, on behalf of his people, has haggled. The number of prayers to say per day, uh, on the advice of from fifty down on, to five, on the advice of Moses. This is in Ishak, page two hundred and seventy-one. Dear listener, so oh, it's incredible, isn't it?
1: Well, you know what I find incredible about this though, is that you know you and I are coming at this completely stone cold, knowing mm. nothing about it. Mm. So we can sit here and say this is ridiculous. Mm. I just wonder, you know, are kids raised with this all their lives so that they've got no choice but to believe it? Or, you know, how do they... How does their cynical mind... Not their cynical mind, but how does their... Um, oh, what's the word I'm groping for? You know what I'm trying you, to say,
0: don't how you? How do they apply critical thinking to it? Or is yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Well, when you're brainwashed. Like, I've got all the sympathy in the world for the kids who are brainwashed. and And it's... And, the, you know, the adults who were brainwashed as kids, I'm really unsympathetic for the likes of... I think Walid Ali's wife was a late convert to Islam. Like, she converted at 19 or 20 or something. And I just think, yeah. goodness sake, you were an adult. Did you... Re- you know, if you are a follower of Islam, you, you have to believe all this garbage. I mean... Exactly. Muhammad was the perfect... He uh, was perfection, but we haven't even begun, Scott, on the on the warlike atrocities that he then commits onto the non-believers in Mecca and Medina, uh, and, and what goes on there. But you know, if your religion is based around this guy, you've only got to scratch the surface of his own biography to go, "This is
1: it's completely garbage.
0: bonkers." Yeah. As an educated Western person, that you could, for an instant... I mean, 700 years ago, the Quaresh tribe was saying to the Ethiopians, what sort of people are you? You've been sent here to investigate, and you've swiped everything you've said, you stupid idiots. Like
1: yeah, it's exactly.
0: A, so, uh, it's frustrating. So, um, it but anyway, frustrating, I yeah. thought, uh, that's interesting. So, in the coming weeks, we'll... Um, uh dear listener, um help you with a little ride along the life of Muhammad and it it I mean it starts off comical, but it gets pretty darn <laughs> ugly
1: as Very we go quickly. along. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. So um so there you go. And that's it, dear listener, for this special episode of the podcast. Uh thank you for those of you who have sent kind words and feedback during the year. If you're one of those people who hasn't, then I'd really appreciate it. If you've been enjoying the podcast, if you've been listening to a few episodes, please, as a little Christmas present to Scott and I. Could you just send us a bit of a message via Facebook or something like that, just to let us know and uh, encourage us to keep up the, the good work, hopefully, over, you know, next year. So, uh... Hope you enjoyed the show. Not sure what we'll produce next week, but uh, it'll be a surprise for all of us. Okay, bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends, let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Vis Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is, you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon. And there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really...